Good morning, how are we all? Good, well I'm about to dampen any positive morale as we look at the kingdom of God is costly this morning. Not the costly family, although that would be nice, wouldn't it? They are in fact the runners-up of the family, funniest family in Britain, wasn't it? The Beano competition, is that right? Yeah, that's fact, yeah. So you didn't know that, did you? So the costly family last year were the runners-up in the Beano funniest family. So, And we know them, okay, isn't that amazing? But we are looking at the kingdom of God is costly and I have to say it's been weighing on me all week because it feels like quite a heavy message. I think it's an important message and it's really important we season it with grace and God's love. He wants us to know his care, his tenderness, his goodness, his compassion but equally there is times we need to be challenged. I think it's one of those mornings where we look at the kingdom of God is costly and I'd much rather get up and just say once again, God loves us, it's all going to be okay, keep going, but I think there's a challenge here to step into what God has for us. So I'm going to pray now because I think it's really important we hear from God, not from me, and I'd love you to be praying with me as we begin our time together. Father, as we open your word, we want to thank you for your incredible word. We thank you just for the truth in scripture. And where you want to encourage us and affirm us and build us up, I pray that you do that. For those of us who need just strength and affirmation in you this morning, I pray that that would be very real to them. But equally where individually and or as a church you want to just provoke and stir and challenge and stretch us, I pray we'd be open to that. And it would be you speaking today and that anything of me that's not helpful would be forgotten, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. So as we've been doing, I'm going to read the Bible passage, and then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. So if you're able, I'd ask you to stand as we do that, just as a sign of respect to God's Word and what He wants to say to us. So in Matthew 19, this will stretch your stamina, because it's quite a long passage to be standing for. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you of a renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much when inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So if you're able to, would you say the Lord's Prayer with me? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. So a few weeks ago, my son Tobin was five, and one of his favorite, it wasn't really even a gift, but part of the festivities was a helium balloon. And we were in the car, and he had it tied to his hand and said, can I take it out and walk it back to the house? And we said, no, no, just wait there, don't let go of the balloon. And then we went to the house, and just as we were leaving, Jensen said, can I, can I take the balloon? I said, well, Jensen, you can, but do remember it's helium, it will blow away. Anyway, we get back to the house and Tobin walks in. His balloon has flown away. We went to Jensen and said, Jensen, why did you let the balloon go? He said, I just wasn't sure I believed you. I wasn't sure that it would fly away if I let go of it. So if anyone's seen a balloon with a five on fly past the house, can we have it back? It's ours, okay? So that's ours. Keep an eye out for that. But what I wanted to say, and in a quite cheesy way, is that the kingdom of God is costly. For Tobin, it was his balloon. But what is it going to cost us? But equally, what I really want to ask us this morning is how are we open-handed? How are we willing to let go of things? How are we open-handed and willing to let God speak to us, to be open to what he might want to do, a place of surrender? And as we look at the passage we've read, we realize that this rich young ruler had an eagerness to meet Jesus. You may know, but... The book of Matthew is one of what's called the Synoptic Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what happens is that Matthew and Luke likely use Mark in order to write their account. So they're three eyewitnesses' accounts, and Matthew's likely use Mark and Luke. And in these different versions of events, different snippets and different angles and perspectives of what's happened, we see that actually this rich young ruler ran to Jesus. He might have been prostrate on the floor, kneeling down, desperate, eager to meet with Jesus. There's a desire to inherit the kingdom of God, a desire to understand from Jesus what's entailed, what's involved, how do I step into this life you're calling into me. And in the books of the Gospels, we see that kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, salvation, all can be used interchangeably. It's one and the same. And the questions of the day were, who is this guy, Jesus? What is he offering? What do I have to do? Is he the one we've been waiting for? Is he going to give me eternal life? Is this kingdom worth being part of? What is this kingdom he talks about? All the different groups at the time, all different people were asking these same questions. And broadly, there was four types of Jews. There was the Pharisees, who you may know of, and they were the holy of Anvau. They were desperate to get the rules and regulations right. And often it was about duty and not love. Then you have the Sadducees who, they thought there was no way to follow God in this world and to kind of stick to following him without submitting to society. So they just blended in. They couldn't stand out, so they just fitted into society. That's how they responded to what they thought was following God. Then you have the Essenes who thought, well, we can't actually live a life worthy of following God, a devout life. Let's just go and hide in the mountains and let's almost be like modern-day monks. Then you have the Zealots who basically felt that the Roman oppressive rule was so oppressive, the way to match it was with violence, violence meets violence, almost like terrorism. 
So these were different groups and all these people are wrestling with what is this kingdom that Jesus is bringing? What is it that he's coming to? What is it he came for? Is it worth giving up what I have to follow this ruler, Jesus? And Jesus says it's not about these rules and regulations. It's not about what you can do. It's about what I have done for you. It's about my grace flowing through you. And in this passage, we see quite clearly that it's the now and the not yet. So he's saying to him, come and be part of my kingdom for eternity. But that starts today. Come and embody this kingdom, this rule, this reign, these value systems today. Come and embrace it now. But he challenges the rich young ruler to be open-handed. says, it's here now. Life in all its goodness. Life in all its fullness. The grace is sufficient. Come to me. But be willing to be open-handed. Be willing to lay things down. Be willing to surrender. Don't hold anything back. He's asking him to be prepared to give away his greatest possessions, his wealth. And this is straight after the passage where Jesus talks to little children because there he's saying, have a childlike faith, have a dependence on me. And he's saying, unless you come to me as children, unless you come to me in a place of dependence, you can't truly follow me. And now he's saying, come to me open-handed. Come to me, be willing not to have anything between me and you. Have my heart. Be open to stepping into what I have for you. Are you willing to come to Jesus this morning open-handed? Are we willing once again to say, actually, I surrender before you? I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. I'm willing to lay down anything that's between me and you. I want to be open-handed. A few weeks back, one of our friends spoke to us prophetically as a church, a girl called Helly, and she said she felt there was a challenge to us to wake up. And there's also a book called Sleeping Giants by Tommy McNeil, which is a challenge and a provocation to the church in Scotland. And he talks about the challenge to wake up. The two came hand in hand at the same sort of time. And these are both a warning and an encouragement. They're a warning because there's a challenge to say, actually, you need to step into what God has for you. You need to embrace what God has for you individually and as a church. You need to wake up. But it's also an encouragement saying this kingdom is now. The fullness of the kingdom is available. Are you willing to step up? Are you willing to be open-handed? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to wake up what God might want to do to me, what he might want to say to me? Am I willing to be open-handed before God? Am I willing to be open to him this morning to receive what he might want to say to me, to step into the fullness of the kingdom once again, to lay down anything that is being an idol is blocking my heart from receiving him afresh? But here's what we can do when we hear a message like that. If you're anything like me, you think, I'm so glad the person I'm sitting next to me is here this morning because they need to wake up. I'm so glad that the 915ers heard that because they're the ones who need to wake up. We're fine. We're totally fine. But the 915ers, they need to be open-handed. I'm so glad that the elders are here because they need to wake up. I'm so glad that the staff team are here because they're the ones who need to wake up. They're the ones who need to step into what God has. And they're the ones who need to be open-handed. But what if God is speaking to me this morning? What if God is challenging my heart? What if God is challenging and provoking and stirring me to come closer to him, to step into his kingdom for now and the not yet? One of the reasons it's likely that the camel is used in this story is because 
Apparently, camels are notoriously stubborn. And in order to get through the eye of a needle, it would have to crouch down, and that would have not been possible, as we'll come on to in a moment. But it's saying, don't be a stubborn camel. Don't have that stubbornness. Is God saying to us this morning, look, I want to speak to you afresh. I want you to be open-handed. I've got some good things in store for you. Be, be willing to lay down anything that's getting in the way of a full relationship with me. To allow our hearts to be open to his encouragement and his challenge to come and speak to my heart this morning. So how do we do this? We see in this passage that the rich young ruler was well respected. He was likely to be wealthy. And Jesus says that the camel, again I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at the times in 30 AD, this would have been like comedy gold. They would have been stitches. This was hilarious. A camel getting through a needle, that's just impossible. How on earth can that happen? That picture's not actually that helpful, is it? Because it would suggest that a camel can get through a needle. But they would have been in fits of hysterics. Now, fortunately, comedy's improved. Certainly mine has, because that's not that funny. But they would have been laughing and finding that hilarious. And there's some debate. Some scholars say, well, it's part of the city wall where there was an arch and the, com- the camel would not be able to get down. Even crouching down, bending down, would not be able to fit through the arch in the wall. But most scholars will say it's just likely to be a needle, a needle of a day, saying a camel could not fit through a needle. It's not difficult to enter. It's impossible. It's impossible for this wealthy man to enter. It's not difficult to enter. It's impossible. That's how they would have received this at the time. And this would have shocked them because at the time, wealth would have been attributed to success and favor. God's favor and success meant wealth and affluence. And this turned it upside down. And it's worth saying that Jesus isn't against money. There's wealthy people in scripture who know God's favor. And in short, Jesus has a much more positive view throughout scripture on wealth than any socialist worldview. A much more condemning of greed and injustice than any capitalist worldview. But what Jesus is against and what scripture is against is idols. He's against anything that takes away a heart being fully devoted to Jesus. He wants this man's heart. He wants our hearts this morning. He wants us to be open-handed, but he wants our hearts. He wants us to recommit to him afresh. He wants us to be stepping into the fullness and the goodness of the kingdom. And he's like a good surgeon. He comes to me this morning, he comes to you and says, here's what I want to happen. I want you to have this fullness of the kingdom. I want you to have a fullness of life, the goodness of following me. But here's the cost. Here's what it's going to take. Here's what you need to do. Here's the procedure. Are you willing to step into that? That's why the man went away sad, because he wasn't prepared to do that. Jesus said, I want you to have this fullness. I want you to have a hope in me. I want you to have eternal life in me. I want you to have all the goodness now and not yet. But here's the cost. He wants a man's heart. Are we open-handed? Are we open-hearted this morning? As I was thinking and praying, I was recognizing this is both challenging and freeing. It's challenging because Jesus wants our hearts. He wants to lay down any idol or anything that would inhibit our relationship with him, inhibit us stepping fully into what he has for us. But it's also encouraging because there's freedom in simplicity. There's freedom and liberation as we come to him and lay things down. We stop carrying the strains and the stresses and the burdens of this world. 
we're aware that this financial climate we're in at the moment, the situation we're in, is concerning for many of us. And some of us are genuinely worried about getting food on the table this winter, and we want to support you and do what we can and pray for you. Others are worried about our mortgages, our shares, the cost of living, whatever it is. But there's actually freedom in saying, I trust you, God. As I give myself to you more fully, I trust that the goodness of the kingdom will support me and carry me through this. But it is also a challenge to lay down any idols, to lay down anything that would inhibit our relationship with him. One of the things I think about God's grace as such is that when we become Christians or when we come to him this morning, he doesn't say, hey, here's the 20 things you need to sort out, deal with them. He doesn't say, hey, you've got to sort all this stuff out this morning. No, no, what he does in his grace is he comes to us and says, listen, this idol, this thing is just not allowing you to step into all God's goodness for you. I want your heart again. I want you to just lay this thing down before me this morning. He wants just to encourage us to step in and lay down things this morning that are inhibiting our relationship with him. You see, we have to lay down what God encourages us to do in order to step into more fully the goodness of his grace and the goodness of knowing Jesus. You see, the failure of a rich young ruler isn't wanting too much, it's not wanting enough. The failure of a rich young ruler isn't wanting too much, it's not wanting enough. Because in this passage we see a lot of the truths about what we receive as we follow Jesus, what we step into. You see, yes, it's costly. It's very clear for Peter and the disciples and the rich young ruler, it's costly. They're all saying, is it really worth following Jesus? Is it really worth giving it to? The disciples, Peter, are all weighing up. Is it worth following him? Yes, it's costly. But alongside that, we see that there's salvation. There's eternity with Jesus. There's forgiveness of sins. There's hope in him. Yesterday I was at a funeral and I was reminded, quite starkly to be honest, of a 22-year-old lad who tragically died. Just about what's available for us, about the incredible gift of knowing Jesus for eternity. And I was reminded again that this isn't just some trivial thing and some insignificant event. This matters. This is a gift for us if we choose to follow him. The kingdom is now and not yet. We step into it for eternity. And as we do that, we recognize that we have different values. When we recognize that we're with him for eternity, it changes what we value on earth. It changes how we use time. It changes how we view our money. It changes what we value. It changes how we step into what God's got for us. Because life on earth is purely a blink compared to being with him for eternity. It completely turns upside down how we live today. But we also see in this passage that all goodness is found in Jesus. In this passage, we see Jesus say to him, well, why do you call me good? And he's playing with the man a bit because he's basically saying, well, if, if only God is good, then you're saying that I'm God. And this guy's wrestling, who is this man? And he's wrestling with saying, well, okay, if, if, if only God is good, then I'm Jesus and I must be God. He's playing with him. But he's saying actually all hope all freedom, all fullness, all goodness is found in me. He's saying, come to me and trust that everything that you need, everything that you could possibly want, this side of, etern- this side of being with me forevermore in eternity is available now in me. My 
personal journey, and some of you will know this, and I've shared it once or twice before, I'm sure, but when I was about 19, I wanted to make it professional at basketball. Now, my 19-year-old self probably isn't able to hear this, but I probably just wasn't good enough, to be honest, but let's, that's an incidental fact. And I was training all the time and desperate to make it, and I was pushing myself, training really hard, long days, and I was also back from holidays at university, and I was working at a supermarket to get some cash, and then having a pretty good social life, probably slightly too good, and I was out quite a lot, and then getting a few hours sleep and doing the same again the next day, and eventually, after a few weeks, I made myself seriously ill. They thought it was drug-related, it wasn't, I hadn't taken drugs. They thought I was going to die. I remember chatting to my brothers since, and they said that the hardest thing for them was telling my mum that they didn't think I was going to die, but actually all things looked as though it was the end because it was very serious and the support machines, etc. I was on did not look great. Anyway, miraculously, in a few days, I got better and I came around and they put it down to some sort of virus, but they never worked out exactly what it was. But I was still bedbound and still stuck in my house for sort of 20 hours a day. And that was a tough time because, in my opinion, all the things that were important to me, my basketball career, my studies, my friendships, my social life, just having some sense of purpose, it seemed, to my life was all taken away. And then I went to my uncle's funeral. My uncle tragically committed suicide. And although I was sleeping 20 hours a day, I felt it right to go there. And I was in the car park of a funeral barely able to stand up because I was still physically really weak. I remember saying, God, God, you say you love me. You say you care for me. You say you want good things for me. This doesn't feel like this. This feels rubbish. Everything that seems important to me, you've taken away. And he said to me, I vividly remember, you've been stripped of all you have, but you've been left with all you need. You've been stripped of all you have, but you've been left with all you need. Trust me. Trust me, trust that his kingdom, that stepping into life with him in all its fullness and all its goodness and all its glorious is always enough. One of the challenges for us who are Western Christians is that we can often think it's Jesus plus. Jesus plus my house, Jesus plus my mortgage, Jesus plus my friendships, Jesus plus my job, Jesus plus my career, whatever it may be for you. And we can build our relationship, build our faith on the stuff that's peripheral and not solely on Jesus? What are the idols he's asking us to lay down? Because the answer to our financial situation, our broken home, our perceived failure in Jesus, whatever it is this morning, is always Jesus. I know that's the Sunday school answer, but it's true. That's why as a church we say we're following Jesus. Yes, we want to love this city. Yes, we want to be family. But first and foremost, we want to abide in him because it says in scripture that all fruit is from him. Remain in me and you will bear fruit. The answer is always Jesus. And this man wasn't prepared to step into what God had for him. He ran away sad because he wasn't prepared to embrace it. But like any relationship, we have to invest in it. We have to do our part. I remember back in the day when I was dating Adele about 12, 13 years ago. If I was going to meet Adele, you know, I put the work in, right? I put my best Ben Sherman shirt on. Half a can of links to Africa on that one, half a can of links to Africa there, you know. Do my hair about six times. But I was working it, you know, now it's just, no, it's not. I was, you can hold me to account. You can hold me to account on that one. But you invest in it. And the same is true of our relationship with Jesus. Have we become lukewarm? Have we become 
complacent in our relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that I felt in the last couple of weeks, and I had someone share this prophetically, is that in the difficulty of the last years, there is weariness, there is heaviness, there's apathy, there's some challenges that happened in the last years. I'm very aware of that. One of the schemes of the enemy, I think, is to, think, to make us think that we haven't got what it takes to step into what God has for us. To think that we have to play it safe, we have to retreat and, and not believe that he's a God of the immeasurably normal, not believe that his grace is always sufficient, not believe that he can always do what he causes people to ask for. Where there's vision, there's provision, where he asks us to step in stuff, he'll always provide. Because when we come to the end of ourselves, it's the beginning of God, because God's grace is always sufficient. We turn to him because when we say, actually, God, we can't do that. That's our strongest place. Because then we say, actually, God, it's all about you working through me. When I lay down the things before you, when I'm willing to be open-handed, your grace fills me and your grace strengthens me. But it starts with a renewed passion for Jesus. It starts saying, revive me first. Before you revive, before you do revival in the city, revive me first. Stepping into what God has for us. Remember this man was trying to work out, is this kingdom worth being part of? Is it worth stepping into what God has for him? Yes, it is, but step into it and be willing to be open-handed. As I've been reading this passage, one of the things that I haven't seen anyone else say any credible, no one, no one said this as I've been reading around this passage, but so I'm reluctant to say it because there's scholars who haven't spotted this and who am I to suggest anything other than this. But I wonder that this passage is more for Peter and the disciples than it is for the rich young ruler. I wonder if it's more for Peter saying, actually, look, here's the cost. Here's what I'm asking of you. Here's what I want you to commit to. Are you willing to? Because Peter in this passage says, yeah, but what do we have to do? Am I really able to give it all up? Now, we need to say that Peter still had a house. He still was looked after. He still had a fishing trade. We know that from elsewhere in the Gospels. But was Jesus saying to his disciples, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to be my father for eternity. I want you to give everything for me. It's going to be costly, but it's going to be so worth it. And Peter was the leader of the early church. Peter gave everything. Peter, according to the Apocrypha, Peter was crucified upside down because he wanted to be, he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. He gave everything. He was used in mightily significant ways, but he weighed up a cost. And he said, yes, I'm willing to follow you, Jesus. Yes, I'm willing to give everything for you. Yes, I'm willing to step into all you have for me. The story of the early church is you can't outgive God. The more you step into what he has, the more you give to him, the more he does in and through you. You cannot outgive God. Are we willing to be open-handed this morning, laying down anything that might restrict us from stepping into all he has for us? What are the idols, the things that are just making it about Jesus plus? What are the things he's asking us to be open-handed with this morning? I want to finish by reading from Mike Iaconelli, a guy who's an American pastor. It's quite old this now, and it's very American, but I think it's something really helpful in this. And just when you thought we couldn't be challenged more, then I believe me, this guy stretches us. Episcopal priest Robert Capon named the first obstacle. We are in a war between dullness and astonishment. 
most critical issues facing Christian today is not abortion, pornography, the disintegration of a family, moral absolutes, MTV, I told you it was old, drugs, racism, sexuality, or school, pray, school prayer. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. The good news is no longer good news, it's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing, it's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wild-eyed radicals anymore. He changes them into nice people. If Christianity is simply about being nice, I'm not interested. What happened to radical Christianity, the unnice brand of Christianity that turned the world upside down? What happened to the category-smashing, life-threatening, anti-institutional gospel that spread through the first century like wildfire and was considered by those in power as dangerous? What happened to the kind of Christians whose hearts were on fire, who had no fear, who spoke the truth no matter what the consequence, who made the world uncomfortable, who were willing to follow Jesus wherever he went? What happened to the kind of Christians who were filled with passion and gratitude and who every day were unable to get over the grace of God? I'm ready for Christianity that ruins my life, that captures my heart and makes me uncomfortable. I want to be filled with an astonishment which is so captivating that I'm considered wild and unpredictable and, well, dangerous. Yes, I want to be dangerous to a dull and boring religion. I want a faith that is considered dangerous by a predictable and monotonous culture. What is God asking of us this morning, individually and as a church? What is he asking of us to be open-handed with? Has my faith, has my journey with Jesus got lukewarm? Has it got complacency in it? Is God asking me to step into more? Is he asking me to lay down some stuff that is robbing me fully committing to him? Let me pray for us. Father, as I said at the beginning, if there's anything that we've heard this morning that's not of you, I pray we'd forget it. And I pray that we'd be challenged this morning where you want to stretch us, but equally strengthened by the personhood of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister? We want to just be completely open to what you want to do and what you want to say. Nothing more, nothing less. Have your way, we pray. Amen.